0: Welcome to All About Literacy. We've invited Dr. Brandy Mendham to this podcast episode to speak with us about literacy assessment. Dr. Mendham is a thoughtful, passionate, and dedicated educator. She is Zealand Public Schools' first female superintendent, having assumed that role in July of 21. Even though she serves as a high-level district administrator, her heart is as an educator. She's an experienced educator with a demonstrated history of working in both pre-K-12 systems and higher education. Dr. Mendham earned her PhD in educational leadership from Eastern Michigan University, and she is the proud mom of three teenagers. Brandy, welcome to the podcast.
1: We are thrilled to have you, and we're really excited to learn from you in this next half hour or so. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great opportunity. For the next 25 minutes or so, Eric and I will take turns asking you questions, and I get the first question, and I'm excited to hear the answer. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Some of our listeners do not come from the Holland, Zealand area, some of our students who are listening or people beyond that. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and then what sparked your passion for education?
2: Absolutely. Thanks for asking and thanks for having me. I would just say that I am, as Erica mentioned, the new superintendent for Zeeland Public. I was a proud member of the team prior to this appointment and so served our district for the last seven years as the assistant superintendent for curriculum and instruction. And prior to that, I did some work at the West Shore ESD up in Ludington, which is the ISD for that region that serves eight local school districts in three counties. And my role there was as a general education education consultant and an early childhood specialist. And prior to that, my, my heart and soul obviously is in the classroom still to this day. And it started in Baldwin, Michigan, teaching first graders in a high poverty district, immense poverty, as I mentioned, and amazing kids and families. And so I started my work there, taught in that system for five years. And a lot of the lessons I learned in those five years continue to be some of the strongest ones I've ever had. I really encourage new teachers, new educators to just relish those first few years that are incredibly challenging, but the lessons learned. In those first few years, just uh, really stick with you for the duration of your career. My heart and passion was there. It's always been about serving others and supporting others. And so, in this role, I just feel that the weight of that responsibility for the entire system and our community as we provide a great educational experience for our students. Brandy, before Erica asks the next question, I just want to thank
1: you for reframing those first few years as a teacher. I think the language often we use around it is it's so hard, It's you're gonna burn out, they're so challenging. And I just love your reframe of it to say, yes, it is challenging. And we also, as educators, perhaps learn some of the most important and valuable lessons about students and ourselves and schools and systems and so on. So just wanted to say a quick thank you for that, as, particularly as we think about Erica and I think about our hope and Grand Valley students, and as they're getting
2: ready for their, those first few years of teaching. So wanted to say thanks for that. Yeah, That's really intentional. I think it's really important. And if nothing else, I think we, we need to create those spaces where our new young teachers can feel like they can take risks to grow and model what we're expecting from our kids. So to truly reframe that and continue to talk about it, especially for those of us that have been in the field for a while, I think that creates that space that we're hoping our teachers will feel the support and the trust.
0: So to follow up on that, Ben, even though your initial teaching experiences were at the elementary level, most of our students are secondary folks, although we do have K-12 music and PE and art. So when you think about working with secondary teachers, what are some common misconceptions about literacy assessment that you've encountered? And this can be true even with elementary, but i um, really thinking about the secondary piece because this is a podcast all about literacy assessment. So we're interested to know, and our listeners are interested to know, what are some of those misconceptions that you've encountered or observed?
2: That's a great question, Eric. I think that it is important to just recognize that as we go into education, we have to make that decision, right, about whether we'll become elementary certified or secondary. And it's a pretty important decision. And some people know right away what their fit is. Others explore and know that their fit is working with kids. And then they figure out that, that level and certification as they move through the coursework. At the end of the day, when you move into a position outside the classroom, you sometimes become responsible for all of those levels, which is certainly the the case that I've had. So I I had first grade teaching experience, obviously a a literacy-rich grade level in many ways in our system. I've had preschool experience, which is entirely different than first grade is. And then at my ISD role, I worked in all of the different content areas and had to come alongside in districts because they don't have uh, curriculum directors in systems um, of that size. And so to really be flexible in our mindset and support with teachers, leaning on best practice and leaning on research is really helpful. And I think that as we've done that, you naturally stumble into some misconceptions And I would say at the secondary level in particular, the one thing that I've always valued is the rich content expertise that our teachers at that level have. They often have a great passion for their content level. And so that is without a doubt, you see that right away. The challenge sometimes though, is that there's this perception that students should truly be proficient readers and really be literate by the time they arrive at their door And the challenge, we know that's not always the case. And the the biggest worry I have in working not only with our staff, but educators in the post-secondary level as well, is we don't do a great job sometimes of preparing them with what strategies they need to meet the needs of kids that maybe have skills that lag the secondary content that they're teaching. And I think that's been something for us in, in our system in particular that we noticed right away was a significant need just to have conversation about what tools can be at your disposal, what's the common language, how do we intervene when a kid isn't at that level, and how do we make sure that that doesn't just become something that we assume is the lower levels responsibility. The other piece that comes to mind is especially around literacy assessment, which is the topic of the podcast, is that teachers have a lot of concern when a particular assessment just doesn't provide them the feedback that they need to make instructional decisions. And so sometimes there's this sense of depending on what assessment is given and for what purpose, oftentimes they're required assessments. If you find frustration around, this doesn't really impact my instruction. And so if I'm giving up that meaningful time to teach my students, I really need to have valuable feedback on the other end. And um, I don't think that's a, That's not a misconception per se, but it's a frustration that our teachers at that level and other levels experience. As we,
1: as Eric and I've worked with um, pre-service teachers over the years, we talk a lot about assessment. And I think sometimes we can, it can be easy for new experienced all of us to focus on the assessment rather than on what's the purpose of the assessment, which you're talking about in terms of giving feedback to inform or practice. And and I, I love that you mentioned that sometimes the feedback isn't helpful. So how do we rethink that? But I'm wondering if you could continue along this line. And as you think about the secondary teachers you've worked with and how you've tried to support them in your various roles, what are some of the barriers? And you've mentioned one, sometimes the assessments don't give us the feedback about our students reading and writing that we need. But as you think about secondary concerns, secondary teachers identify as being more content area experts rather than literacy experts. What are some other barriers that you've observed over your years working in schools?
2: Yeah, thanks for that. I I definitely have some barriers. And certainly when you inquire about these with staff, they're they're quick to note them as well. And so it gives us a space to start and to really come alongside. And some of these you can you really can tackle pretty quickly. Others are a lot more challenging to get your arms around. So some of the first ones that come to mind are that vast span of reading interests and abilities within the classroom. So I mentioned that before in terms of the sense of thinking students should be fully proficient by the time they get to that secondary level and what happens when you've got that wide span in the classroom. The other piece that I think is one of the easier things at times to take care of is that lack of access to high quality and high interest text. We know resources are always a struggle. So this isn't, it's just easy and you can check it off the list because it's always a need and times change and our our students' interests change. And so just making sure that what they have access to is, is fresh and exciting to, to keep them really interested or to try to even engage them at that level. I have one of my own children who reading would not be on his list of favorite activities. And so continuing to try to find what is it that he really enjoys that isn't reading, that is something you can have in text. And then all of a sudden there's a desire and a a need and motivation to absorb it. So thinking about that, getting to know your students obviously really well, and that can be a barrier depending on your instructional approach. If you don't take the time and really invest in trying to get to know your students as individuals, you may not realize that what you have to offer in your classroom library doesn't really attract them at all. If that library really is more about who you are as a reader or what your literacy interests are, it, it may not align. And so just really would encourage um, teachers to, to think about that piece and how they can make sure there's a, a variety there. I think the, the last one that feels very pervasive in every system I've been a part of is this perception that literacy lives in the ELA classroom. And we know it does, and we know that it needs to live everywhere else. And I think that's a misconception. And it's also a big barrier because there's never any extra time. I haven't had a teacher ever in my life say, I have so much extra time. I don't know what to do with it. And because they don't, we know that asking other content areas to find space to fit this in feels like an inconvenience. It feels like a strain. It's something that they're having to sacrifice in the content that they of course feel really passionately about. And so the minute you ask them to remove something to make space for this literacy, it's that it's that literacy bully conversation we've talked about before we have to make space for it but it feels like it's always pushing something else out and so it either does that or we don't have the additional time for it and we know how valuable it can be when you approach it from a systemic perspective rather than assuming our ela certified staff are the ones to carry uh, this load so that
0: that's We, Deb and I both talk about that with our students and even with colleagues in the field. And one of the challenges is that does feel heavy for a lot of ELA teachers because they actually don't know how to teach a student to read a scientific journal article, for example, or how to think about theorems and problems. They're qualified in ELA, but they're not qualified to teach music. And as you said, Brandy, the idea that every teacher is a teacher of literacy really does matter. And so thinking about for secondary folks, how they can embed literacy in, and to support the content understanding rather than it being this extra thing that it becomes part of the teaching because it gives them access gives students access to content because that's what they want me you know, all want them to do so as we think about that what's what's something you wished more secondary teachers knew about literacy assessment, especially thinking about across different contents or disciplines.
2: Yeah, I, I guess um, a resource in particular, I, I have a, a strong desire for our teachers to be more familiar with the essential literacy practices that those are put out by a statewide network, they're research based, they're relatively new, and unfortunately I think they, they m- might get lost a little bit in this pandemic era, where teachers are, are trying to look at their curriculum and revisit their scope and sequence and resources like this that may seem like a nice to have or when I have time to dig into it. And they truly are the the root of everything we should be doing in our classrooms. And it's not just the ELA classroom. It speaks to everyone that may be listening. It's regardless of your content, regardless of your grade level, there's everything in there from preschool to high school, every content area, even center-based practices to to take advantage of at the school level coaching practices. So it's just a really fantastic resource for anyone to start to take a look at and dig into together and challenge yourself to take on one or two new things you may not have been doing. So it feels like it's doable. It's not a a giant new standards document. Instead, it's just really meaningful processes and practices that you can determine whether those are already in existence in your classroom, or maybe you need to make some tweaks and be more in line with what's suggested by the research.
1: For our students who are listening,
2: I promise that Erica and I
1: did not ask Brandy to say this. Uh, this is an assignment that we give our students to look over those essential literacy practices. And so it's wonderful to have you also recommend it. Oh, we couldn't have planned a better Erica. This is awesome.
2: Well, you'll be excited to hear that and the courses that I've taught as well at the college level, that's a key resource that we spend time looking at. So it's it's not wasted time whatsoever. And our teachers that are in the classroom will be thrilled to know that those new teachers joining them are already familiar and it's not new learning once they hit the system.
0: Mm.
1: Well, s- speaking of teachers who have learned from sort of these concepts, or if also as you think about secondary teachers across the disciplines over the years that you've been involved in schools, can you share any aha moments where you've seen teachers paradigm shift perhaps about literacy and how to assess literacy? And for our listeners We're talking about literacy summatively and literacy assessments and formative literacy assessments as well. And I just wanted to make sure that we know the umbrella of the different ways that we can uh, assess our students reading and writing and speaking and so on. But are there aha moments that you've observed or journeyed alongside of teachers and that you might be able to share with us, Bryn?
2: Yeah, I think a couple of them. One of them would be I think that anytime we hear your assessment, it feels heavy and like it's a it's going to take a long time. It's going to be difficult to administer and lots to grade. And I think one of the ahas is what you can do with formative assessment in the moment, kind of opportunities to to gauge where kids are, to have these you know one on one conversations as kids are immersed in their text and, and wandering around and checking in with them and having them just read a few sentences to you to see where they're at. And so, is it an appropriate text and how are they engaging in the comprehension? of it. And just knowing it doesn't have to be what we typically might think of as an assessment to give you valuable feedback for knowing what to take as your next move as a teacher. I think the other piece that has been just fantastic for us, especially at the middle school level. So you've got these students where ideally they are proficient going into that level with their literacy skills. And and we know that realistically we have some who aren't. And what I've seen with some of our our teachers who have um, committed to learning more about those early stages of reading and how to be really effective in your instruction with those skills is they've implemented some assessments where they've administered running. I know those take a lot of time and I know that they're comprehensive, but they've administered those. And then they really have taught to the areas of need that are demonstrated through that assessment and just the growth that occurs when that assessment and instruction is tightly aligned like that. And the celebration that the kids can have because they recognize here's where I am, and then the growth that they can celebrate if that instruction, obviously, is aligned to those areas of need. It's not obviously that's not rocket science, but it's really exciting to see when the teacher puts in the effort and takes the time to do these things that, that do take away time for the kid to see that return on investment and for the teacher to be motivated then to continue to do that. So I got really excited about a year ago. We had hired a new teacher who was um, starting a new course and supporting some of our struggling readers where she would give me, it was sort of like the monthly update, like you probably don't need to know this, but you guys just see the growth that my kids have had. This is amazing. And so just seeing that's what the work is about. And uh, when wanna energize the kid that obviously energizes the, the teacher to keep doing it. So I think it's worth it when you have the, the feedback from the assessment really guide your instructional moves. And if you're using assessment and finding that it's not making an impact or a change on what you would do next, you really need to think long and hard about whether that's the right assessment and, and what's missing from that or what might be missing from your approach to guide your instruction.
0: So building on, on that, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the things that you had mentioned earlier is the essential practices that came out, and not like I said, not very long ago. Are there other resources that you would recommend for beginning teachers in particular who might want to learn more about literacy assessment or instruction, especially at the secondary level in that middle school, which is a really fun space because it's, they're not elementary students, but they're not high school students and their adolescents are, I think adolescents are a lot of fun, but middle school um, is especially unique just because of all the development that's happening, both physiologically, emotionally, socially, academically. So, What resources might you point beginning teachers to who wanna learn more about literacy assessment or even instruction with literacy too?
2: It's a great question, Erica. And I think one of the things that I recognize as as an educator is there's never a shortage of resources. In fact, it's just the opposite. Sometimes we can feel so overwhelmed because there's so many resources and we often don't feel like there's ever enough time in the day. And so to have a laundry list and then feel like, oh, I didn't get to those either. And there's so much out there that I don't know. My preference is to pare it down and to help teachers really guide them to what research is going to suggest or a resource that really aggregates a lot of recommendations in one space. So you get the most bang for your buck. And I would just go back to the essential practices. That's our key piece. And if we could get all of our classrooms in the state of Michigan to really grab hold of those and implement what's in that, in those recommendations, I think we would really see some drastic uh, increases in student achievement across the board when they're not easy necessarily to implement Widely right away. There may be some real changes you need to make systemically, and we're working through those. So, providing yourself enough time and space to really deeply understand them. I think the danger with uh, those is you can. you can review them and you can quickly make it a checkbox and and think that each practice or recommendation is pretty straightforward. And when you dive into them a little bit more with the um, professional development that's available to support those, you recognize pretty quickly that while that recommendation may be brief in the written document, what it looks like in practice is a little more comprehensive. So I say focus there. Don't go out and just find any little thing online because we know that's definitely a tendency and there's lots of things that look fancy and capture our eyes and look like something that would be perfect in our classroom. And sometimes with best laid intentions, they're not necessarily what we need to move kids forward with their achievement. So this is just, it's tried and true. It's got a lot of great minds that put that work together and it's supported widely at the state level and local level at the ISD as well. So its it's just a solid resource moving forward.
0: I think that's such great
1: advice particularly as we think about how many resources are out there and how do we pare it down? I loved your comment about getting the most bang for your buck and and also doing it within community, right? So it's not just an individual trying to encounter resources, but I I love your comment about system-wide you guys are exploring. So it's something that we're able to do with others and have that support as well. Along those same lines, what other advice do you have for beginning teachers? You already shared a little bit at the beginning of the podcast And I just have to say, I hope both of our Eric and my teachers get to teach with you someday in your district, because you can tell that you have a heart and you have thought deeply and intentionally about how to support your teachers. And it's great to hear all the shout outs to your the teachers in your district, even in this short podcast. So what other advice might you have for beginning teachers.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I love that we can wrap up this way. I I would say first and foremost, thank you and welcome. It's the best profession in the whole wide world and we need you. So don't second guess your desire to to enter this. Don't think that you don't have what it takes. It, It is hard work, but it's the most important work and it's so critical and so valued. So I think that You you just need to hear that and know that's something that we're continuing to remind our own staff of on a daily basis, um, especially as we move through some of these challenging times. I would give the advice to seek out resources and supports that are research-based and current. I did give that warning about there's a lot of stuff out there that can grab your attention and can make its way into your classroom if you're not careful, and it may not be. Uh, The best in terms of what research would suggest our kids need in front of them connect with your mentor take advantage of professional development i'm a huge believer in. um, continuing to grow and learn so that we model what we expect from our kids I don't think that stops at any level myself included you you continue to grow you continue to learn and we just need to continue to get better to be better for our kids, so I would say to wrap up, to make sure that you're taking care of you, that's critical because you pour your heart and soul into your students and their families. And it's really important to try to find that balance. And that's advice others have given me as well. And I don't think we're always the best at taking our own advice, but I would say, make sure that you figure out a way to find a balance because the work is intense, but the rewards are amazing. And
0: so what's really fun about this is not actually the last question we're going to ask you, but we didn't give this question to you ahead of time because we have a fun question that we ask everybody at the end, but we could have we could have wrapped it up right there, a mic drop because especially the part, Brandy, where you said the thank you and welcome. I think teachers don't hear that enough. And I know that even in my work with pre-service teachers over the years, many of them question whether or not they really want to go into the profession based on experiences they have or just the workload that they perceive or what they imagine it to be like without really knowing and having been part of the profession or the field. And so they do need to know that there are educators out there who have their backs and who want to work with them. This is a profession where we do, we want to work together and we want to serve and support our students so that they grow and learn too. So one of the things that we, Deb and I talk about in our literacy courses, and we talk about these communities of practice where We have things that we're interested in and good at. We affirm and draw on students both in school and out of school literacy practices. So, for example, hobbies or sports or cultural or religious or ethnic groups, you might actively participate. What is, for you, one out of school literacy practice or a community of practice that you participate in and enjoy? And it cannot have anything to do with your professional world.
2: That's a great question. I I guess I would say, first of all, it won't surprise you to know that there doesn't feel like there's any time to do those things. So that's first and foremost. I definitely don't devote the time to it that I wish I could, but I I just am a reader by nature. I, I don't find myself reading for pleasure ever, to be honest. Whenever I do read, it is something that I feel like gives me opportunity to grow and be better at what I do professionally or as a mom or what have you. So I found myself this summer on the lake, oftentimes with a book in hand that was recently released around the one that I took a look at most recently was around fearless schools and fearless leaders and trying to rebound and and come back to what's most important so that we can quiet some of the noise around us from the pandemic and really focus on the important work of taking care of our kids and our communities so for me, it's just reading with a purpose and and knowing that there's always a, a resource out there if you just look for it or, or ask others. And just the, I think the social network side of things, looking at Twitter, seeing what other people are reading and doing, I'm always impressed by that. And that often will give me insights into what I might want to dig into next.
1: Randy, thanks so much. We'll be sure to um, put in our program notes, your Twitter handle, because I know Eric and I both follow you and we enjoy seeing what you like and what you post and repost. And so we'll make sure that our listeners can have access to you in that way as well. Thanks so much for joining us today. You've given us lots to ponder on and think about and get excited about. So just grateful for your time with us. For those of you listening in, thanks for joining us as well. Be sure to follow All About Literacy on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. We're Deb Van Dyne and Erica Hamilton wishing you beautiful adventures ahead as we keep learning all about literacy. Thanks, Brandy.
2: Thank you.